Okay, so good morning. We're ready to begin. Parshas Chaye Sara. It's hard to believe we're already plowing our way through Sefer Bereshis. It was just uh, Sukkot. We just made a Siyam on the Torah. So, uh, as always, we'll try to review the Parsha quickly, briefly, and then delve into some specific Pesukim. Parshas Chaye Sara begins in the Stone Chumashim on page 106. And of course, the beginning of Chaye Sara, Chaye Sara begins with the death of Sara. How did Sara die? What was the cause of death that was written on her death certificate? She was scared to death. Yes. We use that expression uh, loosely, but metaphorically, but in Sarah's case it was meant literally. She was literally scared to death. In fact, Rabbein Yon accounts, we know that Avram went through ten tests. It's a very interesting exercise to go through these partios and identify what were the ten tests. But one opinion is that this was the tenth test. The majority opinion is that the tenth and final test was Akedas Yitzchak. That's a pretty good test. Take your son, your beloved son, your legacy... And people don't appreciate this. Take the son and do to him what you've been preaching against. Here you've stood on your soapbox every morning. You've preached to the contemporary culture, the contemporary world, that to murder your own child is a form of paganism and idolatry, is unethical, immoral, wrong, corrupt. And now God says to him, you know that thing that you've been preaching against to the world? You know the thing that you've been holier than thou going on TV telling everybody you can't do that? I'd like you to do that. That was the test. And Avram was prepared to do it. However, Ben Yonah comes along and he says, no, that's not the tenth test. The tenth test is when Avram comes back and finds out that the news of what he did almost cost, not almost, cost him his wife. Would he retain his faith? Would he in retrospect regret what he did? Or would he remain committed to what he did and to God and understand that God is a God of goodness? That indeed is a great test. The Slanam Rebbe, the Nesiva Shalom writes, that's what it means when we say in davening and hashkivenu and marav every night. Vehaser satan milfanenu umeacharenu. We ask God remove the satan, remove the yitzhara, remove the the evil inclination milfanenu from in front of us, umeacharenu in back of us. What kind of yitzhara is in back of us? If we've passed it, we're already in front of it. The yitzhara is in pursuit of us. I worry about the Yetzirah in front of me. I'm not worried that yesterday I was tempted by chocolate cake. I'm worried that tomorrow I'll be tempted by chocolate cake. I'm not worried that yesterday I was tempted by Lashonara. I'm worried that tomorrow I'll be tempted by Lashonara. What does it mean, remove the Satan, remove the Yetzirah from Me'ach behind me? Says the Son of Rebbe a brilliant insight based on this. It means, God, even the tests that I have passed, but then have consequences and results that I didn't anticipate, help me not regret doing the right thing. You know, sometimes there's two layers to a test. There's the test to do the right thing in the moment. And then there's when it didn't work out the way you hoped it would, not to regret that you did the right thing. Doing the right thing is not always instantaneously rewarded the way we would hope. So to not regret that we did the right thing later, that too is a secondary test. That's what the Slonim Rebbe says. Haser Satan me'acharenu. So of course Avram comes back and he negotiates buying the burial plot from Ephron Hachiti. From here the rabbis uh, derive, you know, don't just look. Avram had this incredible skill not just to listen to what Ephron was saying, but to listen to what he was really saying. Ephron was saying, you know, a little money between us, what is it? Take it for free. Avram said, no, I want to pay for it. What he really understood Ephron to be saying was, it's a lot of money. <laughs> And I'm going to hold it over your head for the rest of your life. So Avram wanted to pay for it, and he did, he did. And Hebron is ours, indisputably ours. It's our Parsha. It's not a, not that it's a modern tie to the land, our tie to the... If you've been to Hebron recently, you've taken a tour to Hebron, you can see, unbelievable, they've excavated back to the time of David HaMelech. You can see where David HaMelech stepped. It's unbelievable when he was in Hebron. Absolutely incredible what you can see today. So David negotiates Hebron. Then Avram Zakein Baba Yamim. Hashem Berachas Avram Bakol. Avram then is Zakain. He's on in years. I like the art scroll there, politically correct uh, translation. He's on in years. He's a senior. And uh, God blesses Avram Bakol. What does it mean Hashem blessed Avram Bakol? So Rashi quotes, what is Bakol? My father actually said this at the Shalom Zachar of my son late in the evening. That Bakol is Gamatria Ben. Bakol means the numerical value of a of a son. So, uh, and in fact, that's how Rashi understands. That's what the very next thing that Avram wants to do is is uh, find his son a a spouse. God blessed Avraham with everything. The Ibn Ezra, 12th century Spain, suggests that Avram was blessed with everything. Ibn Ezra says, yamim What does it mean Avram had bakol? He had 
children, he had wealth, he had longevity, and that's all that man could ask for. Children, resources, health, and that's all. This is everything that a person could want. The problem with this explanation is, and to say that Avram had coal, he had everything, is his wife just died. What do you mean he had coal? His wife, with whom he partnered to revolutionize the world and introduce ethical monotheism, is now gone. And yet, the Torah is going to describe, well, Avram had everything because he had money. And he was still alive. Okay, look, he made it, every man for himself. So he had everything. It's a little bit, doesn't sit so comfortably. But moreover, the very next thing after, and Avram had everything is, Avram went to go look for something he didn't have. Namely, a daughter-in-law. So what do you mean Avram had everything? And then the continuation is, so Avram went to go look for that which he didn't have. If he had everything, why did he need something else? So perhaps you can understand the word bakol a little bit differently. The significance, uh, what does it mean bakol? So first of all, we find that this word kol is used with all of the avos. At the end of the parasha it says, when Avram is going to expire, Vayitain Avram as kol asherlo liyitzchak. Avram gave, so you could read it as kol asherlo, he gave everything he had, his portfolio, his assets, his winter home, his summer home, his camels, his donkeys. He gave it all to, to his son Yitzchak. Or, you could understand, not that Avram gave Kol everything he had, but Avram gave Kol. He gave this concept, this attribute, this character trait, this capacity to feel Kol. Why do I say that? Why do I say that? When we bench, what do we say at the end of benching? God bless us and bless our kol. By the way, kol not with a kuf, like voice, kol with a with a chaf. And commotion is baruch avoseinu. And why should you bless the kol that we have? Just like you bless the kol that someone else had. Who else had kol? Commotion is baruch is baruch avoseinu. Avram Yitzav Yaakov. Bakol mikol. What is this? Bakol, Mikol, Kol. So, Rav Levi Yitzchak, the Berdichever in the 18th century, the great Berdichever, says Bakol, Mikol, Kol. He explains the correspondence with each of the Avos. Bakol is our Pasuk. The Avram Zakein, Baba Yamin, Vashem Be'erech is Avram. Bakol, God gave Avram Bakol. That's Avram's gift of Bakol. Yaakov, when Yaakov and Esav reunite after they've been separated for all those years, and they ask one another, how are you doing? What's new? What's going on? Esav says, Yeshli, Rav. I have a lot. I've accumulated. I've amassed a lot. I'm a pretty wealthy guy. I have a lot. Yaakov turns to his brother Esav and says, Yeshli, Kol. Oh, you have a lot? That's nice. You know what I have? I've got coal. I've got everything. I've got everything I could want. Avram, Hashem Berach is Avram Bakol. Yitzchak says Yeshli Kol. Uh, sorry, Yaakov says Yeshli Kol. Yitzchak too. We see Avram gave the Kol to Yitzchak. Says Rav Levi Yitzchak, the concept of Bakol, of having Kol, is a concept of humility, of being satisfied with what you have, of recognizing that whatever you have, it's what's meant for you to have, and therefore you have everything. Not to live a life of jealousy, lust, and envy. Not to live a life of feeling, if only I had, I could be happy. Not to live a life of pursuit, of gaining, of amassing, of accumulating. But to realize, what I have, Hashem has given me what I need. It means I live a life of bakol. It's a life of humility. At the end of benching, we've just eaten this good meal. And we say to God, God bless the cold, bless our capacity to feel with a sense of humility. I have everything. Just like you did Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov, you gave them bakol. Mikol Kol all references to a Pasuk that refers to Avram, Yitzchak and Yaakov each having a sense of Kol Hashem give me that capacity give me that sense give me that ability to feel Kol that whatever I have I have everything so Avram felt he had everything and when you feel you have everything where do you direct your energy towards? helping others so when Avram felt I have everything all of a sudden he realizes but you know what? someone very close to me whom I love my Yitzchak he doesn't have everything. I need to go find him a wife. Finding the wife was not a contradiction to Avram feeling I have everything. It's when you feel, you know what, I'm taken care of. I'm good. Whatever I have, God has, God has provided for me what I need. Let me see what I can help others get. And he, of course, notices first and foremost his son, his beloved Yitzchak, to go find him a wife. How does he find him a wife? He sends Eliezer. That's what we're going to look at. Rif goes up to the test. 
she takes her she takes Eliezer and his camels back to her father Lavan's house. They work out a deal. Eliezer takes Lavan. I'm sorry, takes uh, Rivka back to meet Yitzchak. Yitzchak is out in the field, introducing us to the concept of Mincha. He is Lasuach Basade, by the way. If you over the summer we we did the Shiurim on davening, we have uh, no no less than thirteen words in Tanakh to describe Tefillah. The Medrash quotes the Alkut Shimoni thirteen synonyms for prayer. So one of them is Sicha. How do we know Sicha is a word for prayer? Because that's exactly what Yitzchak is doing. Before the evening, namely Mincha time, Yitzchak goes out to the field. What is the word Lasuach? What's a Sicha? If you're in Israel and you're having a Sicha, you're having a conversation. So you see again, there are 13 distinct types of prayer. One of the kinds of prayers is to have a conversation with Hashem. Like He's your best friend. Like you're having coffee with him. Oh, so my kids, yeah, this one got this great. Oh, this one's trying out for the soccer team. Oh, let me fill you. Oh, God, today's the election. <laughs> you know how things uh, work out. Let me fill you out. Let me let you know what's going on. You know, the Yankees got anemic and they couldn't get a hit. They got knocked out of the playoffs. What else do you want to know, Hashem, what's going on? Let me tell you in my life what's going on. La Suach, the concept of a Sicha. Avram remarries shortly after he dies. I don't know if there's a correlation between the two. Then uh, we have the end of the, uh, the, end of the Parsha. That was just a joke. The end of the Parsha, we have uh, Yishmael's genealogy. Very interesting, the end of the Parsha. Last we heard of Yishmael, what happened to him? Last time we heard of Yishmael, what happened to him? Exiled from the house. God says, from everything your wife tells you, listen to her, she's right. Something women have been throwing in our faces since then. And he therefore exiles his own son Yishmael, throws him out of the house. And do we hear anything about Yishmael since then? Gornish, Zippo, zero, until the end of our Parsha. And when does Yishmael re-emerge? When does Yishmael re-emerge? so Yitzchak Bonov. All of a sudden, Avram dies, and out of nowhere, who buries him? Yitzchak Yishmael. Yishmael shows up. Once gave a shir about this, based on a medrash that uh, Rabbi J.J. Shachter shared with us, that um, you can almost picture it. Yitzchak hasn't seen his brother, his half-brother in years. He's been thrown out of the house. He's standing up there giving a hesped. The shul is packed with people. Avram passed away. Avram is the, this incredible spiritual leader of the world. The place is packed. It's being broadcast over satellite around the world. Yitzchak is standing up there with his long beard and Yitzchak is delivering the most moving eulogy, quoting from t- sources of Torah everywhere. And all of a sudden... You hear the rev of an engine in the back of the room on a motorcycle, his tattoos and his piercings. Yishmael shows up. And what happens after all these years of not seeing one another? Yitzhak says to his brother, Come, stand with me. And arm in arm they stand in the front. And Vayik so, as the Pasik says at the end of the Pasha, Vayik so, Yitzhak Yishmael Bonov. At the end of the Pasha they come together. How could it be that Yishmael comes back? How could it be Yitzhak? gets along with him for this moment. It's a great testament to Avram. It's a beautiful medrash which describes that all the time that Yishmael was gone, Avram never forgot about him. And no less than three times, Avram got on his donkey and made his way to Yishmael to go check in on his son. That though he wasn't comfortable with Yishmael living near Yitzchak, he didn't forget about him and he went out to him wherever he was. Right? Outreach. Maybe a first form of outreach. So anyway, a beautiful medrash about that. All of that is by way of introduction. What I want to uh, spend our time on this morning is where we left off, according to my calculations, which could be wrong, but where we left off last year. Last year, I believe we got up to Shlishi, corresponding with chapter 24, verse 10, page 110 in the Stone Chumash. Chapter 424, verse 10. Chapter 24, verse 10. Okay. What happens here, we're right after the point where Avram says to Eliezer, I need, a son, I need a daughter for my son Yitzhak. Eliezer says, what if they're not going to be happy? What if they don't? And they make a deal. Avram says, I need you to swear to me, right, that you're, you're you know, from whom specifically you're going to get a daughter-in-law from me. Uh, Eliezer loyally swears. And now Eliezer's on his way. Page 110, 20, chapter 24, verse 10. Perach of Dalet, Pasuk Yud, corresponding with the Aliyah of Shlishi. Vayikach ha'evet asarag malim migmalei Adonav, vayelech v'chotuv Adonav biado, vayakam vayelech al-arab naharayim al-ir nachor. So the servant, ha'evet, it's interesting he's lost his designation. It's interesting that in this Pasuk he's lost his the honor of having a name. The servant took the ten camels of Avraham's camels and Vayelach he went Adonav Biado. 
Bechol tuv adonav, all of the good of his master was in his hand. What does that mean? We'll see in a moment. Vayakom vayelach, he got up and he went. Al Aram Naharayim, al Ir Nahor. He went to the place called Aram Naharayim, to the city of Nahor. What's going on over here? Look at Rashi. Migmale Adonav. What does it mean? It took, he took the camels of his master. Says Rashi, Nikarim Hayumi Sharagmalim. Avram's camels were distinguished from others. If you saw these camels, you knew these aren't random camels. These belong to none other than Avram. How did you know? How are Avram's camels better? Says Rashi, as Barbara's alluding to, Avram's camels were muzzled. All other people's camels walked freely. And when they got hungry, they would nash. And they didn't just nash from what belonged to their master, their owner. And they didn't just nash from that which was ownerless. They nashed wherever they were. Avram, who was particularly sensitive, honest, and careful about uh, stealing... Therefore, muzzled his camels so they would not eat from others. So, therefore, Rashi is saying, Migmale Adonav. Could have just said, What, what bothered Rashi? That would have been enough. Why did I have to say Migmale Adonav? Right? As we've talked about very often, every comment of Rashi, and for that matter, all of our commentaries, particularly the medieval commentaries we study in the Mikros Gedolos, their comment was, was motivated, was spurned by a question. Something precipitated the comment they make. So what bothered Rashi? The Pasuk could have said, He took ten camels. Why does it have to say he took camels from his master's camels? Isn't that obvious? So Rashi comes to teach us. No, it wants to tell us the master's camels are different than everybody else's. What else did he take? The Chotuv Adonav. What is Chotuv Adonav? Says Rashi, He took a document. Avram signed a contract bequeathing all of his assets to Yitzchak. He took his will. Eliezer took Avram's will. Why would Avram's will help him on this journey and to fulfill this task for which he was sent? Says Rashi, because the people where he's going, they're into money. So, you know, nice that you're bringing this you're representing this boy for a shidduch and you want our daughter, what's one of the first questions they're going to ask that sadly continues to be asked until today? What's the uh, financial uh, standing of the... uh, What's the financial status of the boy's family? I'd like to see their portfolio. What's his net worth? What's the father's net worth? Where do they live? What kind of house? What's his job? Do they go away Pesach? Which hotel do they go to? They have a housekeeper? Is it live-in or is it not live-in? Do they, uh, and so what kind of car do they drive? So Avram anticipating, sadly, by the way, the Torah here is describing that's what it's like in Canaan. That's not what it's supposed to be like for the Jewish people. But I could tell you, uh, tragically, that it remains such. So Avram, so Avram sends this document, a contract, a will, showing Eliezer will be able to flash it to whatever, whomever will be the uh, appropriate spouse, he'll be able to flash this uh, will and say, look, the guy I represent, it's got money. And then, Kadesha Yikfitsu, right? The language of Rashi. They'll jump. When they learn of the wealth, they're going to jump to be getting in line to try to date, to try to be set up with this boy. He's a consigliere. Right. He's, uh, he's doing a good job. He's, he, he's legit. He's got to the godfather. He's a consigliere. He's, uh, yeah, he's representing the family. He legitimately represents the family. Absolutely. Rabbi Fox. That's a reference to what you just said. Uh, all the more so because he had a vested interest. And he says that he oh. had a daughter. Yes. And he was very much wanted. It's what's the Correct. We'll see that in a moment. Eliezer demurred when originally sent uh, on this mission because he really all this time is watching Yitzchak grow up, this fine young man, and he has someone in mind for Yitzchak, namely his own daughter. And therefore he hesitates, which is alluded to early, before where we began, and we'll see it's alluded to again in a moment. Aram Narayim, where is he going? He's going to a place called Aram Narayim, says Rashi, Bein Shtei Naharos Yoshevas. Why is it called Aram Narayim? Why is the place called Aram Narayim? Because it sits between two Naharim, between two rivers. Which rivers? The Tigris and the Euphrates. And that's exactly where it's located, and that's why it is called such. Okay, continuing. 
And by the way, it's not so simple. The other commentaries, v'chol tuva donav. You could look on your own. I just want to make some some headway here. But um, what? Correct. The Kliyaka references it. The Orachayim talks about it. The uh, Ramban talks about it. The Sforna. If you look at the Sforna, it says v'chotuv adonav biado. What word is extraneous? Seems to be extraneous there. Biado. Right. The verse again could have said the He took ten camels. Why do we have to say migmalei adonav? Rashi told us. And it could have said vayelech v'chotuv adonav. Or it could have said v'chotuv vayikach. He took ten camels and his master's wealth. Why be a doe? Why in his hand? Where else did he take it? Obviously in his hand. Says the Svarno, He took with him money, and clothing. Why does it say be a doe? Again, obviously this bothered the Svarno. He doesn't ask the question, but his answer clearly indicates or, or reveals what the question was. Well, Hutzrach Bezalito Rishus, Eliezer didn't need permission. Eliezer was in charge of Avram's, um, in charge of his uh, estate. He was in charge of his estate. And therefore, Biado meant, Eliezer saw, Biado was a euphemism for, he took what he saw fit. He had access to it, it was his. He was in charge of Avram's estate. That's how the Sfarno understands the word biado. Again, I'm trying to sensitize you in the Psukim. When you see a word which seems extraneous or out of order or doesn't make sense, it should precipitate a question and see if the Mepharshim were bothered by the same question through the fact that they gave an answer. Again, there are many more comments on Bechol Tuv Adonav, but let's keep going. Pasuk Yud Aleph. Vayavrecha gmalim michutz le'ir be'er ha'mayim le'es erev le'es tzeis ha'shoavos. Pasuk Yud Aleph. What happens? Eliezer makes the camels kneel down outside the city, near a well, at evening time, the time that the women come out in order to draw water from the well. This word vayavrech, what is, what is the root of the word vayavrech? means berech. A berech is a knee, the knee joint. That's where we kneel down. Vayavrech, he made the camels kneel down. It's interesting, by the way, the, the uh, Rav Hirsch in his commentary here says that vayavrech, if you repunctuate, can be read differently. Vayavarech, or the root of vayavrech put differently is barech, or ni, is the same root of the word bracha, blessing. What's the connection between the two? <coughs> the knee joint, says Rav Hirsch, <coughs> if you've had joint problems or undergone knee replacement, you know this all too well, that the knee joint, I'm reading from Rav Hirsch directly, in which the power and forces for moving forward are accommodated. The knee joint is the capacity to move. It's the capacity for progress. It's how you propel yourself forward. It's how you get up from a chair. It's how you take a step forward. It's how you move. It's how you make progress. Um, analogous to barich, to bless, and brecha, a gathering of water or an aqueduct. El be'er, towards a well, not next to it. To make it clear, <coughs> to come to light out of the darkness. So Vayavrech, he made them kneel down and Rav is throwing in. It's not a coincidence. What's the, the connection between the knee joint and a bracha? A bracha is progress, propelling forward, advancing. That's what the, the source of blessing is. Yes? Why is it then a problem later on when it says by Yosef, Avrech, and somebody said he was the father of the king, <coughs> and somebody was distorting the description, it actually means knees. So that's but a, yeah, Avrech. But we've had this full word already previous. Well, Vayavrech and Avrech are differently. Avrech, Milosh, and Rach, also the Rashi says. Yeah. We'll get to it when we talk about Yosef. We have a few weeks. Okay, so let's keep going. This is a fascinating Pasuk for a few reasons. So Eliezer causes the camels to kneel down. They're outside the well. They're about to, it's, it's showtime. Here Eliezer's journeyed all this time. He's made this prom, promise to Avram and it's showtime. It's time to find that wife. He makes them, right, the, the, the stage is set. The sun is setting. There's the well. The women are coming out to collect the water. He makes the camels that he's with kneel down. And Eliezer now, one last shot, he's going to David to Hashem. God, let everything here go well. And what does he say? He says to Hashem, Vayomar, Hashem lokei Adoni Avram. Hashem, the God of my master Avram. Hakre na lefanai hayom. Translate that word hakre for me. It's like hakre. What does hakre mean? It's by accident. Well, bring close. Bring forth. Alex said accident. Okay, we'll see in a moment, but that's an unusual word right there. Hakre, na. 
lefanai hayom. Do a chesed with your master Avraham. And now he's about to launch into the whole deal. If you, she does this, that, and the other, then I'll know she's the one. So Eliezer striking a deal with the Almighty. I want a sign, God. Give me a sign. Avraham sent me on this mission. This is a holy, holy task. The progenitor of the legacy of Avraham needs a spouse. I feel an awesome sense of responsibility. God, show me a sign. Now, the word Vayomar has an unusual cantillation on top of it. What note is on top of the word Vayomar? A Shalshelis note. A Shalshelis note. This Shalshelis note is found, how many people, anyone know how many times in the Torah? The Shalshelis is found four times in the Torah. What are the four places it's found in the Torah? It's found with the wife of Lot. Vismama, she delayed. Vismama, the wife of Lot. She delayed. It's found with Eliezer here, Vayomar, when he's cutting the deal with God. It's found with Yosef, when he's fleeing from the wife of Potiphar, who's trying to seduce him. Vayimayin, he rejects her, he refuses her. And lastly, it's found with Aaron HaKohen, in reference to sacrifices, Vayishchat, and he slaughtered. These four things, what do they have in common? So I once saw homiletically, now when we see the Shalshelis cantillation, this jagged edge, this very strong, powerful response, right? If you've heard it, right? The, the triple note. So it's, uh, the four times it's used is to uh, teach us four ways to deal with the Yetzirah. What are the four ways to deal with the Yetzirah? Vayis mama. Push him off. Delay. Like the wife of Lot does. If that doesn't work, Vayomer, pray like Eliezer, turn to Hashem, help me, give me the courage to fight the Yitzhahara. If that doesn't work, Vayimayin, refuse, reject, like Yosef did. He found the courage and the capacity to walk out. And if that doesn't work, Vayishchat, Shech the Yitzhahara, kill it the way Aaron does. So that's homiletically the four times that we have the, uh, the uh, Shashelah's cantillation. But more specifically, more specifically, you find it three times here in the Sefer Bracious. And the three times you find it in Sefer Bracious reveals something else. The Shashelah's cantillation, this triple cantillation, when you hear it sung, right? right. What's the, uh, in ours it's Vayomar? Vayomar. This hesitation. It sounds like there's a sense of hesitation. Of, of an uncertainty. So why? what are the three times we find it here in uh, Sefer Bracious, in the book of Bracious, where there is a sense of uncertainty? So when Lot is urged by the Malach and by the angels, when he's encouraged and he's told it's time to leave Sodom, it says that he lingered, he stayed, and Lot's wife, the Shashelah's note, is used to show that really Lot wanted to stay in stone. His heart was in stone. He didn't want to leave. So the Shashelah's is used to show that Lot didn't want to go. Why did he hesitate? Because his heart really was in Sodom. It wasn't time to leave. With Potiphar, we see that Yosef, when Vayimayin, when he rejects, when he refuses the wife of Potiphar, when she's trying to seduce and tempt him, so Vayimayin, why? Because Yosef is caught in a battle, an absolute war. He's a young single man separated from his family. He has absolutely nothing to lose, so to say. He's a servant in his, in his family's home. Nobody's around, nobody's home, nobody will catch him. And yet, he finds the capacity to refuse, to reject, to walk out on this woman, this beautiful woman who's over the top trying to seduce him. Why the Shashelas? Because he's, he really wants to remain. His heart is with her. He's really tempted by her, but nevertheless he finds the capacity to leave. Now, that leads us to our third case. If the Shashelas is an indication of uncertainty, of really the fact that you want to stay, but you know you need to leave, then what's going on here? Why is Eliezer feel, uh, what is Eliezer feeling when he turns to God and says, Vayomar, when he turns to Hashem to Davin, what's the uncertainty that he feels? Why is the Shashelas being used? So it's what, it's what Rabbi Fox said earlier, the Medrash tells us. The reason it's Vayomar with Eliezer is, he really wants Yitzchak for his daughter. So the uncertainty in, in the case of uh, Eliezer is, he's davening to Hashem, show me a sign, help this work out, but the truth is, he's not really entirely committed. He doesn't have both feet in, because he really is still holding out that Yitzhak will marry his daughter. So interestingly, that's the, the uh, a little bit of background on Vayomar, on the Shashelas cantillation that's used here. Yes?
Why Vayomar? I think Vayomar is a little stronger. Yeah, it's a good question. Good question, I'm not sure. I didn't see anybody mention it. I didn't see anybody. Alex, you had a question? Because he's doing this mission, he's representing Avram. So he's saying, Avram sent me on this mission. Hashem, show some love to your servant Avram. Help this mission work out for him. But come back to this word, Hakreina Lefanai. Hakreina Lefanai Hayom. What's the root of this word, Hakreina Lefanai? It's an unusual word. It struck me right away when you read this uh, Pasuk. Hakreina. So look at the Kliyakar. The Kliyakar understands Hakre the way Alex did. Hakreina Milashon Mikra. Chance. Eliezer says, I want my boy Yitzchak to marry a modest woman. Not a woman of the street. Not a woman who wanders outside. Not a woman who's among all these other maidens. A modest woman who doesn't normally go out. So, says Eliezer, I've got a conundrum, I've got a problem. Because I want to find, I want to identify a woman who's very modest, who's not outside. But if she's not outside, I'll never find her. So God, cause, cause a chance meeting for me today with a woman who doesn't normally go out. That's how the Kliyakar understood. Understands. Nobody knew her. Nobody recognized her. It's not that she went to the well every day for a little good water cooler well gossip. She was there. Just in chance, have her, have her be out there today. That's how the Kliyakar understands. The Rafersh. Um, Completely opposite the Kliyakar. And I find his interpretation very compelling and very powerful. And, and we could develop much longer, but wow, we really don't have time. But the concept of Hakrena Lefanai says Rav Hirsch, We've already indicated, I'm reading Refersh inside, in the English translation from his original German, we've already indicated not only the connection between the roots Kufresh He and Kufresh Aleph, but that they're really identical. Kufresh He is Mikra which we interpret always as chance, happenstance, randomness, happened upon. What's Kufresh Aleph? To call. Says Rafersh, the two are the same. Kufresh Hay, what seems chance, random, happenstance, is really Kufresh Aleph, is really a calling. Nothing is farther from the Jewish concept of Mikra than the idea of chance, with which it is usually taken to be associated. When someone speaks of Kolakoros or Koros or so, he refers indeed to moments of his life that he himself did not direct, but which directed him. They were only events which were not expected, not reckoned on, not intended, but which all the more could be the most in- intentional messages sent by the one who directs and brings about all things. Right? So... Rav Hirsch understands the polar opposite of the Kliyakar. Kliyakar says, God, cause a chance meeting. In chance, have her go out even though she never goes out. Maybe it's not the opposite. Maybe they're really saying the same thing in a certain sense. But Rav Hirsch comes along and he says, No, whenever you see Mikra, what looks like chance, what Amalek, Asher Korcha Baderech, whose philosophy was Asher Korcha, who tried to impose upon us and, and tried to really pervert the Jewish way to, to interpret life's events as happenstance. No, says Rav Hirsch. Mikra, what looks like chance, is really God being Kore with an Aleph. It's God calling out. It's God, it's God directing. It's God sending a message. Kore with an Aleph is to call out, is to send a message. When something looks like Mikra, like chance, there's no such thing as chance. It's God it's God sending a message. And that's how Rav Hirsch beautifully interprets this. So that if here Eliezer prays, He's asking that God may take in hand the matter which had brought him hither. He by himself could not bring it to its desired end. What Eliezer is saying is, God, I'm here. I've got the camels. I've got the rings. I've got the money. I've got the goods. I've done what Avram asked. I came to the destination that he sent me. Now that I'm here, God, God, only you could bring it to its desired end. Send the message. Make it happen. 
The addition, the addition of the word lefanai, writes Refersh, expresses the wish that the direction for which he prays may be such that will further him along the path he has now reached, further the mission. Hakrei lefanai, before me. In other words, send the message, call out before me, make it clear the path. Send me a message. Help me understand. Not what's chance, not what's random, but send me a message. Right? You know the old, the famous joke, I've said it a hundred times, it's good every time, about the guy who's got a critical interview in Manhattan and he can't find a parking spot. He's circling and circling and driving everywhere he goes and he can't find the parking spot. And he says to God, God, if you find me a parking spot, I'm going to stop speaking Lashnara and I'm going to learn the Dafyomi and I'm going to get stuck every day. I'm going to become the most... And right then, the spot right in front of the building where he has his min- meeting, a guy pulls out. And the guy pulls in the spot and he looks up at a guy and he says, Never mind God, I found one. <laughs> Right? So, the, a Malik, a Malik would have him believe, a Malik would have him believe it's Mikra, it's chance. The Jewish understanding is not Mikra with a hey, it's Mikra with an Aleph. God sent a message. He heard. So, we are supposed to live our lives interpreting that which happens to us, not as chance and randomness, <clears throat> but God sending us a message. And that's how Rav Hirsch understands differently than the Kliyakar, this Pasuk, Hakre na lefanai hayom. Continuing, Pasuk Yud Gimel. Says Eliezer, and here's the sign I want you to show me <clears throat> that I'm going to stand by the well. And the women of the city are going to come in order to draw water. The young maiden, the young woman who will say, I want to pour my pitcher so you could drink. And not only should you drink, but your camels as well. She is the one you have proven for Yitzchak. And through her I will know that you have done kindness with your master. God, here's the sign. Here's what I'm looking for. And when she does that, I'll know that you have indeed done kindness. I have identified. I have found the woman. Rashi says, Osahu um, chachta, through her or she, you have, you have proven. How do I know she's the one, says Rashi? Said Eliezer. I know she's the one because she is predisposed towards chesed. She intuits chesed. She is worthy of entering the home of Avraham. What is the key to entering the home of Avraham? Not money, not knowledge, not a high IQ. Chesed. If you intuit and you're predisposed towards chesed, then you're worthy of being the, uh, inheriting the legacy of, of Avraham. Says the Svarno, what's going on here? What bothered the Svarno? What bothered Does anything bother you about what Eliezer does here? Yes. What bothers you? What bothers me is that he asked. Why does that bother you? Because did he ask each and every woman that came up to the well? Oh, he didn't ask her. He only asked for No, he doesn't ask her either. Here he's talking to God. He's making a deal with God. Whoever will come up and do this... That's how I know she will be the one. He's not talking to her directly. He's still outside the well. His camels are kneeling. The sun is setting. He turns to God, Vayomar, and he says to God, while well, he's still equivocating because he really wants Yitzchak for his daughter, that's the Shashelis, but he says to God, God, here's the deal. I got, I've arrived here. Avram sent me. I'm ready to fulfill my mission. But God, here's where I need you to step in. Either randomly caused me to meet her, according to the Kliyakar, according to Rav Hirsch, send me a message. And here's the message I want, God. Here's the deal. I want a woman to say, drink. And I also have for your camels. And when she does, I know she'll be the one. And says this Farno, one second, aren't we not allowed to do that? Isn't that something called Nichosh? Isn't that something called sorcery and witchcraft and astrology, signs, following signs and symbols and omens. Don't we not do that? Isn't that not part of, of Judaism? That's witchcraft. So says the Sfarno. Again, the Sfarno doesn't formulate it in a question. Formulate gives it as an answer. I, I, I'm very confused because according to the um, Torah, yeah. uh, um, I'm sorry, uh, the English, it says... <coughs> Servant ran toward her, meaning Eliezer ran. Yeah, yeah, no, we're not up to that yet. 
Correct. We're not up to that yet. He will. He'll, he'll run towards her. He'll run towards her. But when he does, he doesn't ask her to do it. She does it on her own. Okay, we'll see. Hold the question. Hold the question. We'll see in a moment. Okay. If time, hopefully time will permit in a moment. So what bothers us for now is we don't make deals with God. Uh, God, um, I have $100 to invest in the stock market and uh, show me a sign which is the stock... <laughs> Right, when we try to make that deal, it doesn't work out so well. But what's the deal here? It's clearly bothered the Svarno that he doesn't mention it. So the Svarno explains, He wasn't, he wasn't asking God for the sign. He was davening to Hashem. He was bothered by that. Rav Hirsch is also bothered by it. Let me read to you Rav Hirsch's words inside. Our sages, he's quoting the Gemara in Tanis, our sages by no means recommend Eliezer's procedure as an exemplary method for choosing a wife. Right? Imagine you say to your son in YU, I want you to go down to Stern, I want you to go down to, uh, what's it called? What's the dorm called? Brookdale. Brookdale Hall. And I want you to stay in the lobby. And I want you to drop some books. And the girl who will pick up your books, <laughs> take out a ring, and that is your new wife. I mean, is that what our Chazal say? Is the Torah endorsing this as a methodology of finding your shidduch? Is this what one is supposed to do? So says the Gemara of the Refersh's quoting, By no means recommend Eliezer's procedure as an exemplary method. Only an Eliezer sent on a mission by the confidence of an Avram that God would send his angel already before and to lead him to the right girl may act with such confidence. That his behavior, which the Gemara gives as an example of the formula for prohibited nichush, does not really come under that heading, is already explained by the Ran. Nichush is making a decision depending on happenings which have no rational connection with the matter concerned. But the sign by which Eliezer wanted to know the girl who was the destined wife for Yitzchak was one which belongs to the special trait of character which still today are the most characteristic signs of the descendants of Avram and Rivka and which we summarize under the heading of Gemilas Chesed of this love of fellow man Regardless of class distinction, everywhere and always ready to jump to help, which only slowly broke its way into the non-Jewish world through the direct and indirect influence in spreading the teaching and tenets of Avram, Eliezer had learnt in the house of Avram it was the most characteristic feature of his tent. And Eliezer felt it must be prominently present in the right wife for Yitzchak, and that such a tendency might be found in the family of Avram, and it was on that that he founded his procedure. So says Rav Hirsch, Nichush is randomly. You say, you know what, I'm going to open a cookbook, and whichever recipe it lands on, if it sounds like the last name of this list I have 10 girls my son could go out with, I'm going to randomly open the cookbook and whichever page that sounds like the name of the family, that's who they're going to go on the date. <laughs> Says the Torah, that's nichush, that's a biblical prohibition, you are a pagan. You're an idolater if you do that. We're supposed to believe exclusively in Hashem. Why? Wow, isn't that what Eliezer is doing here? Says refresh, absolutely not. Eliezer is not creating some random structure of witchcraft, sorcery, and omens. Eliezer is saying, my master's tent is characterized by this, Camilus Chesed. That's what I'm looking for in a girl. So if you say, I have a list of ten girls for my son, you know what, my son deserves a girl who does Chesed. Which of these girls worked in Camp Hask or Camp Simcha? Which of these girls volunteers and delivers Tom Shabbos? Which of these girls works in the, in the Chesed committee in her shul? That's who I want for my son. That's not nichosh, says Rafresh. That's not finding some random omen. That is indeed an appropriate methodology of finding a of finding a sheikh. What about the Gora Lagra? The Gora Lagra is not so simple, but that's the Tanakh. Right, the Gemara does have a reference to um, to um, using Tanakh as a form of trying to have an understanding. That's where the Grog gets it from. And the Gemara tells a story, if you meet a child, you're unsure what to do, and you meet a child, you say to the child, what Pasuk are you learning in school? And when the child says, what Pasuk are you learning in school? That's an indication, it's an insight into helping you come to your conclusion. But, as Rav Shechter spoke about two years ago here, that, the Gemara says, is only true about our holy Tanakh. To do so in Igros of a Rebbe, or to do so in a cookbook. Rav Shechter told the story of, of uh, he goes up to Tannersville in the summers in the mountains to, um, to a bungalow, and his neighbor is uh, 
a certain Hasidish family, and they go up, and, and the wife told his wife one summer that they were unsure whether they should go up to Tannersville that summer, not go up to Tannersville, so she decided she was going to open a safer to make the decision, but she didn't have any of the holy letters of the Rebbe with her. So she took out the cookbook, and she opened the cookbook, and the cookbook came out to cherry pie, and she said, cherry pie? I only make cherry pie when I'm in Tannersville. It's a sign I should go to Tannersville. So Rav Shechter said, I'm not making a joke, Rav Shechter said that that's idolatry, that's paganism, it's worshipping an idol. To open a cookbook and think that God sends you a sign through a, a cookbook, that's a, you're a pagan, that's idolatry. That's not, what, uh, that's not the Jewish methodology. That's nichush. That is superstition of the highest order. We don't believe in superstition. Tamim tiyem Hashem We walk directly with Hashem. I don't want to get too distracted by this. It's a tangential comment here by the Refershon, by the Sforno. What was Eliezer doing? Is Eliezer superstitious? Some superstitious sign, whoever's going to pour the water? No, says Refershon, the no, it's not superstition. This is a, a proper methodology. You're trying to see someone's character. You're trying to understand who they are. You shouldn't set up the shidduch by, by the right amount of money or by the zip code of where the parents live. It's by their character. That's the proper way to set up a shidduch. David, you... No. Okay, let's continue. The couple minutes we have left. Oh, there was so much more to talk about. So he's almost he's not even done talking. He's making this deal with Hashem. And what happens? Who comes onto the scene? Rafersh points out, by the way, part of Hashem's chesed is that is that while Eliezer is talking to Hashem saying, Hakrena caused this what looks like chance happening, Rivka has already left her home. So Eliezer doesn't have to wait. By the time he's done asking his tefillah to Hashem, she's already on the scene. She's identified as the uh, daughter of Besuel, who is the son of Milka, who is the wife of Nachor, who is the brother of Avraham. Why all of this identification? Why all this yichus? Says... The Ramban has a whole comment here specifically why. But remember, Avraham's ultimate hope was that his son would marry whom? Who would he marry? What relationship would there be? His family. So Rafersh writes, Avram's wish could hardly have been granted more fully. Besuah was doubly related to him. Besuah's father was Avram's brother, his mother was Avram's niece, and also a sister of Sarah. In this report, it is really Milka who is stressed, as in Rivka's reply. She, the mother, seems not to have come from Avram's family. It seems Rivka took after her grandmother while her brother followed the footsteps of his mother. Right? Rafersh identifies. Interestingly, Rivka's mother is not really highlighted here. It's all the rest of the family. Why? Because the mother is not really a great influence. So first says, it seems the mother is not really associated with Rivka, but who took after the mother? Her brother followed the footsteps of her mother. While she took to follow the footsteps of her grandmother. But you see that Hashem, for why is all this identification? First of all, to give insight into who was the influence on Rivka, who was the influence on on her brother, on Lavan, and, uh, and um, also to show that Hashem answered Avram's tefillah so fully. Not only was it some distant relative, as he hoped it would be, but all these multiple layers of relationship that he, that he shared. V'chada um, al-shechma, and her, the jug is on her shoulder. V'hanara tovas mar'em ma'od, b'sula v'ish lo This young woman is Tovas Marem Ma'od. She's beautiful. She's a virgin, Basula, and furthermore, Ishlo Yida'a. No man has known her. She went down to the well to fill her jug. Says Rashi. First of all, it's an unusual form, Tovas Mare. Tovas Mare. What do we usually see to describe a beautiful woman? Not Tovas Mare. What do we usually see? Yafas Mare. What's the difference between Tovas Mare and Yafas Mare? Says the Sforno, Tovas Mare means literally, Yefas ha, look at the Sforno, Ravavad Yesforno, ha, Tseva. She had a pretty color. She had a good tan. I don't know, she had good skin. She radiated. I'm not sure exactly what he means. But Mare literally means her appearance. She, she, uh, she had a glow. She had a beautiful complexion. She, had a great, she sported a great tan, even though I guess she was inside all the time. I don't know how she sported that great tan. Clearly she was Fardic. 
she was yeah, that's the sheep, true. so she had to be outside. That's true, she had to be outside. The Rav Hirsch notes this. He says, possibly Tovas Mare and Yafas Mare have different meanings, says Rav Hirsch. The first, Tovas Mare, denotes a pleasing appearance, a spiritual beauty of the face, an impression of grace, indicating character, while Yafas Mare would be actual beauty. So maybe the Pasuk is not indicating that she would win the beauty pageant, although I'm sure she was beautiful, but that's not what Eliezer noticed about her. It was the tovas mar'eh, it was that she had a spiritual countenance to her, a sort of chen, a grace. We would be certain that this assumption is correct, were it not that it also says of Vashti, ki tovas mar'ehi. Although this does not exclude the possibility that Vashti's appearance too was pleasing and graceful, rather than actual beautiful. Right, so Refersh hesitates about his interpretation because Tovas Marez describes Vashti also, unless Vashti also had a certain chayin and a certain grace as well. Her refusal itself could well speak for spirit and feelings of respectability. Right? Maybe Vashti, who says to Achashverosh, I'm not parading naked in front of your friends so you could show off that I'm your trophy wife. But, um, but maybe that refusal and the dignity is why there too it refers to as Tovas Mare because it wasn't physical beauty, it was her respectability, it was her integrity, it was her character, her spirit. So maybe Tovas Mare is appropriate both for Vashti and for Rivka because we're not talking about physical beauty, we're talking about spiritual beauty, uh, spiritual beauty here. Why does it say Bisula and Ish Lo Yada? So Bisula means she was a virgin. And Rashi says, Ish lo yada, shalo kidarka. No man was intimate with her in any way. I'll leave it somewhat ambiguous. But no man was intimate with her or knew her in any way. It wasn't just that, because, why, why is it telling us that? Because in those days, Rashi continues, women were promiscuous, but they wanted to retain their virginity. Got them a greater dowry and made them more of a catch in certain ways. So how could you be promiscuous and retain your, your virginity? I'll let you figure that out on your own. But the point is, the Torah is trying to identify that Rivka did not engage in that. When it says that she was a B'sula, doesn't mean she was a B'sula and yet was promiscuous. She was a B'sula and nobody knew her. She was a B'sula and she was very, uh, very, very modest. So Rabbi Moscow, here yet? Yes? That's a great question. Let's leave that aside. I like to avoid the difficult questions. Okay, we're going to stop here. I guess we'll pick up it from here next year. Um, I strongly encourage you to stay. Rabbi Moskowitz is fantastic class on the Torah. Continues now. Don't forget to go vote. Your vote matters. It matters greatly. So please go vote.